Hey, if you have your Bibles and as the gentlemen are finishing up waiting upon you, if you get your Bibles out or your technology out, and why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. Turn to the book of Ezra. In fact, today I'm actually, God willing, going to uh, pick up where we left off last week. Uh, honestly, uh, I told you last week that when Bishop was with us a couple weeks ago, Bishop Fred was sharing and then he referenced Ezra. I don't know if you remember that and you had joked about those four, those four statements Ezra made in chapter 9, which is where I'll read if I get there <laughs> today. Uh, there was just a download. There was like one of those bombs that blow up in your spirit or in your mind or your heart. And there was just this interesting download that began to take place. And so um, I began to just write some things down. I'm going to be heading out to Sioux City, Iowa here in a couple weeks. And a lot of what was downloaded, I think, is for the folks there. But I mentioned to you last week that I wanted to share some of it because I think it applies to us. And if you don't mind, you all are going to be my test tube or my Petri dish. All right. And so we're going to share just a few things with you in the book of Ezra. And we talked about um, what we entitled Recovery Praying. In fact, Recovery Praying, and I put part two. Now, we're going to do a little review. Anybody that knows me knows that I like to do review, and I'll get there in just a moment. But I talked to you last week about uh, finishing up the book by Metaxas, a guy by the name of Eric Metaxas, and he wrote a book entitled Martin Luther. Uh, normally, I recommend the books that I read, but the book's about this thick. The print is about yay big, and it's probably over 500 pages, and unless you're a hardy reader, um, you may not want to even uh, spend the money to get the book. It was a fascinating book to a history nerd like me. Uh, so I read through it, got through it in a week, and there were so many, so many incredible things that he was uh, sharing and insights that just sort of lit up inside of me as I was reading it. I'd taken a couple classes through the years on Luther, and so I really didn't think that I needed another book on him or the subject of the Reformation. But I happened to go out when he was in the area giving a lecture uh, to Kiowa Island, and I was able to hear Metaxas speak in a lecture on, in person, and I decided I was going to pick up the book. And it was a signed copy, and I thought, all right, I can at least say I have a signed copy from Eric Metaxas. But as I was reading the book, it was fascinating to me, and if you'll allow me, because this is kind of the teacher part in me that just kind of goes boom, and that is Luther's, Luther's primary uh, uh, calling, as you begin to understand him, was that of recovery. He saw a church that was in disorder, and there was something God did inside of him that wanted to recover that which was lost. And so he became this voice of recovery. And I honest, honestly believe in the era that we're living in that God is calling up recoverers again. Those that will recover or bring back that which has been lost. And Ezra, the reason Ezra is so interesting to me is because Ezra was a recoverer as well. That God used a certain set of circumstances in order to bring back the people of God into their land, into their nation, uh, recover the temple, recover the wall, recover all of the worship and the overall culture of the nation of Israel and reestablish it again. And all through history, God has used voices that would be recovering voices, and Luther was one of them. And, and I realize people, oftentimes people will say, this isn't interesting to me, you don't understand what's going on in my life. 
I've got bills to pay. I've got relationships that are strained. I've got, you know, kids that are in rebellion. I've got things that are going on that are super practical. And there you are talking about some guy in the 16th century who was irritated with the Catholic Church, and so he retaught doctrine. And what's that got to do with me? Listen, listen to me very carefully. This is what people don't get. This is what we call around here connecting the dots. If you don't get the house of God right, nothing's right. That's just bottom line. The Bible says the judgment begins at the house of God. Why is that? It's because if the house of God isn't right, nothing in life is right because the people of God were always meant to be literally, you know, God himself is the center of the universe, but God in his people, the church, it ends up becoming the rudder or the centering factor in the life of a community or nation. If the house isn't right, nothing's right. If the house is out of order, everything's out of order. It's interesting. It's interesting how God always comes back and before the nation of Israel is established, he says a couple of things. He says, I want you to get the temple rebuilt, and I want you to get the wall around this thing. And there are reasons for that. Long before, he cares about whether or not they get their job, they get the promotion, they get that bill paid. You say, doesn't God care about those things? Certainly he cares about those things. But if he just paid your bills and got you right, you wouldn't care. We've already proven that in America. As long as Wall Street keeps going up, 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 we could care less about our spiritual state. As long as the money keeps rolling and the good times keep flowing, baby, we're all right. Not realizing our underbelly is open for a gigantic wound which is already happening from the enemy. Luther understood this. I told you last week that, that from the year 500 to the year 1,500, 1,500, there was a 1,000 years that we call the Dark Ages. There was no technological advances. There was no inventions. People ostensibly lived the same in the year 500 as they did in the year 1,500. There wasn't that much change. It was dead. It was static. It's what we call the Dark Ages. Nothing new took place until a guy got a revelation. He reestablished truth and the centrality of the scriptures in the life of the church. And all of a sudden, technology takes off. Standards of living take off. I'm telling you, this is God's principle. When his house gets right, everything gets right. If the house stays wrong the culture will ultimately, its trajectory, go down, down, down. And Luther was significant, a lot more significant than those of us in America often realize, because Martin Luther was the man who really became the first time carrying a voice who had the temerity and the courage to look at people with power, kings and popes. And this is what he said to kings and popes. He said these, basically these words. He said, he said, people's rights, people's liberty and freedom do not exist by the whims of man, but our consciences are bound by the word of God. That was radical in that day. It was radical. He says, we are bound to the word of God. We are captive to what God has said. We're not captive to your whims or or." whether you're having a good day or a bad day or what the king says or what the pope says, everything is filtered through this 
book. And that, it was such a radical conclusion that it changed the whole landscape for good. And the reason you and I have liberty today, because this is our position even in America. Our position in America is this, that courts and Congress and White Houses do not have the last say. God's word has the last say. And our consciences are captive to the word of God because the word of God comprehensively touches every area of life. I'm sorry, I'm so off my notes right now. But God is raising up again voices of recovery. The house of God is not right in our nation. We think it's right because we do things that we're used to doing, but we're not right. And God is trying to recover things again using voices of recoverers in order to get the house of God right again. And for us, the issue of our era is not the centrality of Scripture, which was the issue then, although one could make a case that perhaps it still is the issue, but the issue of the church in America, our great issue and our great challenge boils down to pragmatism. Pragmatism, if I took you back to the old Latin phrase, actually means um, uh, it's acting in what seems best. Acting in what seems best. That's pragmatism. Pragmatism is looking at a, at a situation and saying, well, it, this seems to be the best way to go. How many of you know there is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end thereof it produces what? Death. And God sometimes will ask you to do things that don't seem right by the measurement of man. But that's where obedience and faith come in. That if I obey what at times doesn't make even sense to me, if I obey it, that is right, that is objective truth, that is where I stand. But we live in an era of pragmatism because our first question in the church is never what does God say. Our first question is always does it work? And that's killing us. Because we've lost the foundations. We've lost things we need to recover. You know why we don't pray like we ought to pray? It's because we don't think it works. It doesn't produce. We can produce. See, pragmatically, you can look at things and you can begin to say pragmatically, well, that seems best. If we do it this way, this seems to work. So if it seems to work, that's, that's the philosophy we ought to work by. It's a pragmatism is the most dangerous thing that we face currently in the church world in America. Because if it works, it seduces us to believe that somehow God has endorsed it. I could hold men's meetings. If I, listen, I, this, is, this is a sick illustration. I've said this for years. It probably will offend somebody, but I'll say it anyway. You can have a men's ministry and bring in pole dancers and you'll get a crowd. It works. Now, now hear me, we're probably still in the place where that would offend some. Well, you say you hope so, but we'll have Texas, Texas Hold'em nights. And let men drink beer, smoke cigars, play poker. We'll do it in the church gym. Why? It works. It works. How far do you go with it works? Well, if it works, if it works. That's, see, and that's, that's why God's talking to us about recovery. We have got to recover those things that he says are important, which is why I am this thumping drum 
in the congregation that says, if we can't pray, we don't have anywhere to go. If we can't catch this value, this baseline, foundational value, that praying is what God asks of us, whether we think it works or not. Because he said, if my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and then will I hear from heaven, he says, forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just simple enough just to believe it if God said it. But he's raising up recoverers. This is really in me, man. That was like an atomic bomb that blasted in me. When you went to Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all of those books are talking about this same time period of these waves of Jews that are coming out of Babylonian captivity and they're coming back to their land. They come in two separate waves, actually. Sad part is it wasn't solicited by the prophets, nor was it solicited really by the priests or the scribes. It took Cyrus, a civil leader, and Zerubbabel, a civil leader. Those were the guys that initially got this thing going. Isn't that, isn't that almost just sad? That it took something God had to use. That's, but that's God. God doesn't care. He'll use anybody, right? Now, now that, doesn't, that doesn't disqualify us being obedient to his word, all right? So don't make more of that statement than I just said. God will use anybody, but he still expects us all to obey. But he's calling voices of recovery. And I'm going to say this, I guess, softly and humbly and everything I can, but I honestly believe that, well, it was T. Austin Sparks, who was the British evangelist, who once said that the role of the prophet is basically the voice of recovery. And I believe prophetic ministry, as it's being emphasized, is, is a voice that wants and calls and desires and beckons people back to their foundations. Recovery. Now, I want to tell you just four things that just dropped in me as we were worshiping. God was saying a lot. And I know, and I, know I haven't even got past the first slide. I got about 20 of them in here. We may, by the next time I get back, it may be part three. I want to give you just a couple quick items that I believe that are going to have to get in the ministry and are going to have to get into the church. These are things I believe are important if, we're, if, we're, if we believe God is speaking about recovery. If Ezra and Nehemiah and these characters are becoming templates to us that are calling us to recover those things which have been lost. Then hear me, how many of you feel like you've lost some things? I, hey, my hand's up. Hey, God, here's my address, 1299 Discovery Drive. My cell phone number is. I've lost some things, and if you've lost track of me, and you just haven't been able to find me in order to get it back to me, have you ever felt like that? Hear me when I say this. God's people always, there's, there's this there's this corporate happening that God's people oftentimes recover together as they recover the house of the Lord. It was Haggai who said to the people of the land as they're coming back, and he looks at him and he says, you live in paneled houses, but what about my house? And this is what he's saying. He's saying, 
Don't fool yourself to thinking your little miserable piddly pittance of prosperity is all that I have for you. You satisfy yourself on little silly trinkets, but actually you're putting your stuff and your money in bags with holes in it and it's being blown away, not realizing you're losing it all until you get an understanding that the house must be restored. Again, that doesn't make sense to us. What makes sense to us is, well, if I get my act right, then I'll be able to do better towards God. I've heard people say this before. I had a guy who was a multimillionaire who said this to me. He said, when I get $10 million in the bank, that's when I'll serve God with all my heart. How did a guy actually tell me that? God called him, he said, to be a financer in the kingdom. And his idea was, well, when I get $10 million, then I'll be able to serve God. How stupid are you? Did you hear the corporate groan that went up when I said that? But we say that all the time. If I just get this bill paid, I'll obey God. If this little thing happens in my life, then I'll obey God. You don't have as many zeros behind your conditions. But it's the same thing. And it's pragmatic, isn't it? Well, that just is what makes sense. Surely God's for making sense, isn't he? Now you've exposed yourself that you haven't read the Bible. He's calling recoverers. Recoverers are like Luther. If you, if you ever read anything about Luther, he's, part of him you'll, just, you'll cringe and another part you'll laugh and the things he'll say. But, but I just started to get this understanding, even as I was just filtering it through the scripture, that God is calling recoverers. And he's calling churches to be recoverers. And, and dare I suggest that maybe, maybe Pastor Baird and Bishop, our church, that maybe he's calling us to recover some things that we've lost. I'm going to suggest just a couple things. I'm just preaching off the cuff here. This isn't anything I've written down. Is this okay if I, I'm going to roll with this? Now, this isn't just for me. This is for you, too. Uh, hear me. Recovers must be courageous. People don't want to hear that they're lost. They, don't, they, they do want to recover things that they've lost, but they don't like to think that they're lost. We're going to have to find, a, we're going to have to do the gut check or the heart check and, and find ourselves to be courageous again. We're not, we're not being, we're not being, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? I, you know, nobody, nobody signs up to be an aggravation. Nobody wants to be an irritation. Nobody wants to offend anybody. Nobody signs up. I don't sit up at night in my lazy boy, and on Saturday night, I start, I start going through my mind, I wonder how I can offend somebody tomorrow. <laughs> what can I say that could be so outlandish, off the chart, so aggravating, irritating, that it'll just it'll just offend the fire out of them. Do you, th do you think that's what people do? No, that's not what people do. It, it's just a simple presentation of truth, and that's enough to offend most. We're going to have to find some courage, but you're going to have to find some courage. Not just me. I had a phone call some years ago, and those of you that know me know that I, I labor, a part of the ministry God has given me is to labor in the areas of cultural reformation. In other words, people call that political, but, but I don't like to use the term political because of the baggage, but I use the term cultural reformation. Because 
Colossians 1, 16 through 20 tell me that Christ is to have preeminence in every area of life. There is no area of life that is sealed off from his lordship, including the political arena, of which people are most pragmatic. So I labor in this area reminding our civic leaders as well as, as, well as the public that, that even in America, whether or not everybody's saved or not, we are still commanded to honor God. I like what Bishop said. I believe it was you, Pastor Fred, that said it the other day. You know, Sodom's issue wasn't that it had a lot of wickedness. Sodom's issue was that it had no righteousness. And God's saving of that city or region wasn't based on the fact that they had this outlandish amount of wickedness going on. The salvation was based on whether or not the righteous would act righteously. Is that not Bible? Because, because there was this debate that went on between he, was it Abram? He and Abraham had this debate. It started out as 50 and, and Abraham whittled it down to 10. Can we find 10? For 10 people that would honor God, God would save the nation. So it wasn't about how bad their sin was. It was about whether or not they would act righteously. And that's where we're at in America today. And, and we're facing these issues not just for ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren. We are leaving them a mess. And we are leaving them a church that is so out of order that the fact of the matter is, is that unless this is recovered, the whole thing is spiraling. Boy, Pastor, you're positive today, but... We're going to have to find our courage. So this guy calls me the other day. It was a couple years ago. It wasn't just the other day. And he's, he found me in social media, and he'd been reading some of my blogs and things like that. And so we're on the phone, and he's talking to me, and he's aggravated. He's aggravated at where the nation is going. He's aggravated at our civic leaders. He's aggravated at the church. He's aggravated at pastors. He's you know, and he called me because you know, he, he, he sensed that maybe I understood his pain. And he told me the stories of him trying to reach out and trying to gather pastors, and pastors won't gather, and boy, isn't that the truth. And, and, and he's going through this whole thing on and on, and why can't they be, you know, you're speaking the truth, Brother Baird, you're doing this, you're doing that, and why can't we get pastors to do this? And, and you know, he's just really coming after him until finally I, I halted him, and I said, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you spoke to your pastor? Oh, yeah, I spoke to my pastor. He didn't. He, he didn't want anything to do with this, and he's, he, he went on in his little thing again. I said, whoa, 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 let's stop for just a second. Then why are you there? And it got quiet. And this is what he said. Well, my kids like the program, and, you know, they're just, they got the friends there. And it's just, you know, it's exciting for them, and I want to keep him in church, and he's going on and on. I said, hold it. We're going to stop right here for just a minute. This is on the phone. I don't know this guy from Adam. I figure I'm never going to talk to this guy again. He found me on the phone. What have I got to lose? I, and this is what I said. With God as my witness, I said, I said his name because he could be watching live right now, so he, but he'll know. He'll appreciate this story. But I said his name on the phone. I said, you're the problem. You're the problem. The problem is, is that you want your pastor 
to risk everything in that congregation, and it will cost him something, and yes, he probably does need to do exactly what you're saying, but the problem is you want him to be courageous, but you don't have enough courage to break your children away from a fog machine and a pizza. You'd rather them sit in death than put them somewhere where there's half a chance of saving their community and their nation. We're sitting here trying to figure out how in the world we're going to finance reformation, how in the world we keep the church going, where in the world is the money coming from, and we got people like you griping at pastors all over this nation, but you won't have the courage that you're demanding from us. I'm telling you, don't tell me anything anymore until you get up and find yourself someone that you can follow that's a recoverer. Say, well, that's hard. Well, who, who says that finally to America, to the church? When do we get courageous? We say to ourselves, there's something bigger than fog machines and lights and, and all the frills and the program. There's something bigger than this. When do we begin to teach the next generation? It's time to pray. It's time to read your Bible. It's time to seek God. It's time to get saved. I don't know why. I'm just fired up. A lot of times I just teach. Courage. Secondly, this is the other thing we're going to, I'm just telling you some things that popped into me. I scratched these out real quick. This is, these are my notes for today. See those, see those four pen things right there? Those are my notes for today. We have to recover our courage. We have to recover the language of the Bible. We no longer speak the language of the Bible. Because we think it's too churchy. And we don't want people to think they've come to church. So let's, let's you know there's actually ten gifts of the Spirit. The tenth gift is the gift of stealth. Let's just make sure they really, let's not, let's not, let's not throw in, I mean, too much Bible language at them because that could alienate them. And we don't want to throw the Bible and alienate them because they'll never come to God. Are we like stupid? Yes. Yes, we are. Why don't you ever hear anything like the word conversion anymore? Yeah, that's a good word too, sanctification. Well, that's a big word. You know, there, there's a word in the Bible that, that's five syllables, propitiation. Oh my God, five syllables. And we live in a two-syllable generation. You say, well, what difference does that make, these big words? It makes all the difference in the world. Propitiation is about atonement. You can't be at peace with God unless you understand propitiation. Unless we get the language of the Bible, the language of the Scripture back to us, we're, we're, all we're selling people is sort of a feel-good, encouraging, self-help message. The reason people, when they're leaving our churches, aren't being Christian is because we've not preached conversion. We preach decision. We let them make a decision to slap Jesus on top of everything else that is in their life, and maybe he doesn't even have to be number one, and, and then we wonder why we are at where we're at. No, I read my Bible, and my Bible says that when you meet Jesus, all things pass away, all things become new. I have been translated or transitioned from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I am no longer the same person. I am a new creature, the Bible says, in Christ. 
We do not use this language anymore. We must use the language of the Bible. What, what about atonement? What about covenant? These words are important because you can't understand your redemption without understanding these words. But we don't tell people these words anymore. We tell them funny stories. And we laugh and we have a good time. And we send them out and everybody goes, man, I had a great time. There were six belly laughs today. And we've recovered nothing. And everything continues to spiral. I wrote down here that we got to recover and I put the fancy word down. I'll, I'll, tell you the, I'll tell you the word. I put continuationism. Continuationism. Oh, have mercy. Seven syllables now. You know what that means? It, 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 it means that we've got to recover our Pentecostalness. Now, we make fun. We make they make fun of us, too. I mean, this is good-natured. This, is, this isn't anything bad. This is all good-natured. We, we kid the Baptists, and the Baptists kid us. And we kid the Anglicans, and the Anglicans kid us. And we'll kid Methodists and Presbyterians, and they'll kid us. I mean, so there, there's good-natured differences. But I believe that those of us who would say that we believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit are best suited to recover in this hour. I'm just, I just believe that. I believe we understand the scripture if we run to it. We understand the present moving of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the, the, the foundations of the scriptures and the moving of the Holy Spirit, those two combined, is a powerful, powerful conduit through which God can work in order to recover those things that we have lost within the house of the Lord and the congregation. I just, I just believe that. I don't apologize anymore for being Pentecostal. We went through a season, I think, where, where we just didn't want people to know that's who we were. Oh, yeah, what, what, who are you? I, and I realize about labels. We hate labels, don't we? Because labels never say everything. They only say the stuff that are the baggage. You know, for us, if you were to say holiness, I always remember my Nazarene upbringing, which was just like dysfunctional. So when you say the word holiness, it's like, ooh, that word. I remember ladies, you know, wearing the long skirts and the buns, no makeup, no earrings. I remember that. I just remember the rules and the regulations. So you say holiness, and that's what that word kind of conjures up initially. But how many of you know holiness is like a biblical word? It's kind of like Pentecostal. When you think of Pentecostal, you think of all those days where Crazy Aunt Bessie, you know, just did those wild and weird things. And, and again, you can see things that happen outside the box. I've got no problem. I've got no problem with things birthed of the Holy Spirit that can happen outside my range of experience, understanding, or even comfort zones. I get that, that God can do these things. But here's the problem. It's like, it's like we reacted, and now we don't want anyone to know that we believe in the things of the Spirit. Yeah, I speak in tongues. I'm sorry. Will you still like me? Because I guarantee you, you're going to find yourself in a situation sometime where the only one you're going to know to call on the phone is the tongue talker. We're at a time in our nation where we need tongue talkers. <laughs> oh, I, there's so much. Then finally, I, the, the, maybe we'll get to some of my notes. Maybe not. 
we got to recover, and I know these are big terms, just bear with me. What did I say? We needed to recover courage. We need to recover the language of the Bible. We need, we need to just affirm our full gospel heritage. And then the fourth thing I put down here, and I just scribbled it out real quick, is the word transcendence. Transcendence is the word that means holy other. In other words, the Lord himself is both transcendent and eminent. Okay, we're, we're learning in the house of God. I'm not Johnny Carson. I'm not Jay Leno. I'm not, who's the new one now in the Tonight Show? I don't even watch. Jimmy Kimmel? Jimmy Kimball? Kimmel. Nobody wants to say anything. They're afraid to say anything. Transcendent means holy other. There's none like him. I'm not him. He's just, he's awesome. He's God. He's just, I mean, holy, perfect in all of his attributes. But then there's this part, other part of God, which incarnated himself in Jesus Christ when he became eminent, which means this. He's my friend. He walks with me. He understands me. He's compassionate towards me. Now, this is just my take. You may disagree. Hey, we'll, we'll have coffee. We have so emphasized the eminence of God that we have missed the transcendence of God. He's the big guy upstairs now. He's my bud. He gets me. He's okay with this. I've heard more people say this. They, they, they'll, they'll labor in their sin and then look you in the eye and go, but you know, he, Jesus knows I'm on this journey. He's on, I'm on this journey. And I know, I know I'm sleeping around. I know I'm drunk half the time. I know I'm, I'm, I'm drugged out. And I, you know, I leave a wake of, of trouble in my path. I know, but Jesus gets me. Man, I'm glad he's cool with me. He sticks with me like a brother. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. You always notice people will always cherry pick scripture. Now hear me when I'm saying this because we're teaching because you're going to be recoverers, God willing. But we've so emphasized his eminence that we forgot there's this transcendent aspect to God which was the whole reason for Jesus coming. He's holy other. He's awesome. He's a force to be reckoned with. There's none like him. There's no other name. I mean, you tick God off. That's not good. And we've got to recover that sense, that sense that it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about my needs. He will meet my needs, but he meets my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, who I've come to terms with Jesus because Jesus was the only bridge that could get me back to that awesome God. Trace tells her stories about the tides. It was early when she was over there. and In fact, I even think Ed and Beverly were over there too as well. It was one of those initial parties we all went to. And I was visiting with a man that I uh, had met some years ago as we had worked in the pro-life movement, and he's a Catholic gentleman. I'm not a Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Although I was sort of made an honorary priest because of my work in some pro-life things, but I, I told the lady that did that, I said, I don't think your bishop would probably recognize those orders. 
But I was visiting with him, and he had moved, I think, from the north. He'd come down here, and he was talking about his church. And, and I just had questions. I didn't grow up Catholic. Some of you may have grown up Catholic, and all of this stuff you, you would know, and you've made your decisions on it. But I didn't grow up Catholic, and there are certain interesting features of it, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, and, and there's a lot of uh, imagery and liturgy. And, 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 and so it just, it's kind of an, of interest to me. I'll never be a Catholic. There's, there's no connection to doctrine or practice. But it's just of interest to me. So I was asking him these questions, and one of my questions was, hey, when you move down here, how does a Catholic, like, find a church? Like, do you, do you find your house, and you move into your house, and then you just kind of find your parish church? Or is that how you find your church? Or how does this, I mean, I don't know how a Catholic mind works in this regard. And he said, well, I don't know how every Catholic does this, but I'll tell you how I do this. I, I he said, I, I want to find a church, and, and I want you to hear carefully what he said. I want to find a church that still does some things in Latin. Man, I was just like, really? Really? Yeah, I want to find a church that still does the liturgy. Uh, the priest still stands behind the altar in Latin, holds up the host, turns his back on the congregation, and then begins to offer the mass with his back to the congregation. I want to go to a church like that. I said, well, help me understand this because I thought, you know, for most people, they want some kind of connection to what's going on. You know, they want to feel like, you know, they're involved in it. They could understand what's going on. You know, you're talking Latin. I don't know about you, but there aren't that many kids graduating from the Charleston school system with Latin under their belt. And so, I mean, how does this work? And I'll never forget what he said. And again, I'll never be a Catholic, but I'll never forget what he said. He goes, I go to a church like that because I want to be reminded on a weekly basis that when that priest turns his back and he holds that host up, that it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about you creating a service that somehow I connect with. It's not about creating all the bells and the whistles and the lights and the music and the mood it's not about me. I didn't come there for me. I came there for the Lord. This is a Catholic talking. And he used, yeah, I think he did. He used the word transcendent. I want to be reminded that there's something more than me. That there's something greater than me. That it's not all about me. And that there's one hour every week that I am reminded it is not about me. I said, I'd like to meet some more, you, your type. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Is that not amazing? You think about the modern American non-denominational church. It's all about me. It's all about me. I couldn't get away with what I'm saying today in most churches. Well, the fact of the matter is, <laughs> we are where we are today <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Because I didn't get away with it. But that's not the metric. That's not the stick we measure with. He who has the most in the seats doesn't win. Can I show you all the 20 slides I had? See, I had all these slides. Look at all this. I mean, I had slides all over. I had slides to, I, I, you know, I studied all week. I'm going to end with this, and then the next time, Bishop's next week, he can come and 
He can come and soothe the wounds and rub balm. But I want to leave with this, and then we're done. I'd never, I'd never heard this, never read this, never saw this until I was reading this book from Metaxas. He found, he found a part of Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was Luther's best friend. And Melanchthon was the one that did his funeral, his funeral sermon. And Philip Melanchthon said these words at Luther's funeral. And I want to I read them to you. It's just a really super short paragraph. This is what he said. Philip Melanchthon standing over Luther's casket. Some complain that Luther displayed too much severity. He says, I will not dismiss this. <laughs> How would you like the guy standing over your casket saying, you're right, the guy was severe. He said, I will not dismiss this, but I will answer in the words of Erasmus, who was another reformer of the era. This is what he said, this last sentence. Because of the magnitude of the disorders of this era, God gave us a violent physician. Because of the magnitude of the disorders of this era, God gave us a violent physician. I wonder if those are the types of physicians that are arising in our era. If I have a cancer, I don't want a doctor that simply pats me on the back and says, they're there. Be encouraged. Can I tell you a joke while we're here? I, I, how about while you're sitting in my, my, my exam room, I turn the lights off and on for you. We'll, we'll do a strobe light examination. How would you like that if you were filled with cancer? If I had cancer and I go into the doctor's office, I want a doctor that can look me in the eye and says, we're going after that cancer and we're cutting it out. We're going to destroy it. It's going to be out of your body and whatever it takes. If I have to tell you to change your diet, I'm going to tell you to change your diet. If I tell you you can't have Snicker bars anymore, you're not going to be offended with me. We're getting rid of the Snicker bars. You ain't drinking Diet Cokes. You're not doing what you've been doing. We're changing your diet. We're changing your lifestyle. You're doing all of these things. If you want to beat cancer, you don't want a light show. You want a doctor who's violent with that disease. Except in church, we think it's different. And I'm telling you that I think God is sending these types of physicians they don't have to be, they don't have to be uh, aggravating necessarily. They don't have to be jerks. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather have a jerk doctor who can cleanse me of cancer than a doctor that has great bedside manner that lets me die. God's calling these recovers again. He's calling churches to be recovers again. We don't do it because we're irritated with people. We do it because we love people. 
we really believe that what God has said is true and that all of us were born with a disease. It's called sin. It's not going anywhere unless you're converted through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then life, the life of God can then come to you again. We didn't get to our praying, but we're going to stop right there. Sorry. I actually had a few XC. See, I had some more. <laughs> Recovery. Recovery. When the house of God is recovered, I believe God's people will recover. There are some things that have to take place in order. It's not about me and my house. It's about God and his house. And once God and his house is tended to, then the rest finds its place. Stand with me, will you please?